Welcome back to Simon White and the podcast at the center of media, business, and politics. I'm Christian White and joined as always by Mark Simon. Mark, say hello. Merry Christmas again. Merry Christmas. All right, Mark, there's a ton going on, a lot with China, a lot of stuff going on around the world. Intel committed an unintentional act of decency. Didn't last very long. So they came out and they said uh, the U.S. has just passed this law saying we don't want to import stuff made with slave labor in Xinjiang, made by Uyghur prisoners. This is the one or two million Muslims that China has in political concentration camps just hours from where the uh, genocide, I mean, the Chinese Olympics will be held shortly this this coming year, uh, which is only a few days away. Um, the blowback was was rapid. China was very upset that Intel uh, would be saying things like that. So Intel pulled back its apology, issued this groveling uh, statement saying that they were completely wrong, that they want to be a trusted technology partner of China. Just absolute gross, gross, gross. I guess we've come to expect this from a lot of companies, but for some reason, Mark, it still kind of stuns me when you see it up front and close and without any type of, of blush or nod to, oh, you know, we're doing this because we think we have a gun at our head, even though they don't. Uh, I don't know. What do you think that this tells us about the state of, of, of American corporations doing business in China? I, I think it tells us something negative in terms of like, you know, look, these companies make money. There's an Intel China division. There's the vice president of Intel China. There's, you know, Chinese who work inside the company who, quite frankly, that's a are not happy about this. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they wouldn't be happy just like in the other group, national group. So they, they're raising cane internally. But what it really tells us is, is that people are still scared. However, what it also tells us is that Intel knew they were going to get blowback. They took the blowback because they thought the China market was worth it. But I'm not sure that that's the long-term end of this. In other words, I think Intel... It's my belief that we're going to see more and more of these things happen because essentially we're going to be damn demanding more of these companies. And I think there's we're going to start to figure out pretty soon there's not much that China can do to these companies. In other words, are they going to really stop taking Intel chips? I'm not so sure about that. I view semiconductor chips the same way I do Australian coal. You got to have it. The Australians can do what they want to do. The problem is corporations by structure are cowardly. And that's fine. That's what they're supposed to do. These guys are vice presidents. They're worried about the shareholders. They would have damaged shareholder interest. I think the thing that has to happen, and I think it's really quite interesting, is the United States really starts to have an, at the governmental level something that says, look, if our guys say something and you hammer them, we're going to criticize Intel. In other words, I think it would be behoven upon some political politicians, and we see a few Republicans, but I think the administration to say, hey, Intel, you don't have to do this. And, you know, continually just give some people some backstop. I mean, that's the problem that Intel has. Um, the Bethany Abraham from Axios actually points this out. Now, I don't agree with her solution, which is like help or subsidy, but she is very correct. I mean, they don't really get any help at all. You know, the moment you upset the Chinese, Essentially, everybody's kind of looking around. And I, I think it's almost like our State Department just says we don't want any part of that. Our State Department and our Commerce Department should step up. Um, it prolongs the fight. But most importantly, and this is just the bottom line, 
it just encourages other people not to back down as quickly. In other words, you know, or to be a little bit less groveling. Not everybody has to be John Cena. I mean, that's the funniest thing about this. I mean, I don't know why they grovel the way they grovel, um, but they do. You know, you can just say my bad and move on. Right. And see yeah, what exactly. happens. And it, it's sort of like how how much money are they making from this market? It's it's amazing how few and the number is pretty close to zero of big companies that break out uh, in their publicly reported earnings. How much of that is coming from China? Because I'll bet it's extremely underwhelming. Frankly, I'll bet a lot of these companies are embarrassed at the amount of money and marketing that they've put into trying to break into the Chinese market. And it's just always going to be a mirage. It's that, always you're never going to get is... that much control. That is certainly, certainly the case with U.S. airlines. I think FedEx and UPS have a little bit of that as well. Mm -hmm. um, they've put tremendous amount. I used to be in shipping. I can't tell you how much, when we used to be in shipping, how much effort the Federal Maritime Commission put into China. We don't have any shipping lines left. I think what we have to understand is the Chinese want the Chinese market for themselves. We sell to them. Quite frankly, I think the Taiwanese have probably the best approach. And I think lately the best approach has been actually the Australians, the Lithuanians. I think it's just going to happen more and more that, you know, that you're just not going to be able to do these things. I have one final thing on this. When you look at these companies, a lot of the biggest trouble that Intel has is not China, it's getting employees. You got to wonder if employees who are so concerned about everything else, Black Lives Matters, gay rights, environment, climate change, are they really going to want to have basically their bosses kowtowing to a genocidal regime? In other words, right. does Intel, if you're working at Intel, do you really want to be seen as like the Philip Morris? In other words, you know, like, all right, well, we we're up there and we do this. I, I think you're going to start seeing some internally in companies. I think that, you know, ESG is real. I'm not always a big fan of it. I think it's kind of BS sometimes, no. but Hey, if you're going to bring up ESG, you got to touch at least genocide and slavery, you know, and human rights abuses. That that would seem to be in there, wouldn't it? You would think that would qualify, but I mean, this has been a hypocrisy where companies like Coca-Cola and Delta, which you mentioned that, uh, didn't even bother to read the Georgia law, which just is an attempt to tamp down on some of the questionable things that happened in the last election there, pronounced it racist, said they're, you know, or, you know, uh, willing to consider uh, doing less business there, whatever. And yet these guys are all in on China. Um, you know, okay, one way of, of, of operating in China without actually um, having the Chinese government constrain what you can do is to be a Chinese company, but they're even running into trouble. The latest is Tencent, which is um, uh, the owner of WeChat and WePay, uh, which are Chinese-dominated social plays. Uh, they dumped their stake in JD.com, a big internet, work, uh, internet marketplace in China. Uh, they did so in the form of a dividend. They said basically, hey, here's, here's the, the, um, yep. the value of the company we're distributing. Actually, uh, shares in both companies declined. Uh, so it wasn't really, it's certainly not seen by the market as a good business move. So, you know, what do you think is going on here? Is this just preemptive thinning down because they're expecting the government to come in as it did with Alibaba and so many other companies recently and say, listen, you're too big and powerful. We don't like it. Or do you think the, the government already quietly came and did that? And so this is sort of a, a tacit enforcement action uh, going on. I think there's, well, there's always two schools of thought, but I think there's two distinct advice pieces of advice going out in China, China business. The first piece of advice 
is quite frankly, everything's fine. They're just doing their, this is a regulatory thing. You see all the China apologists, the tech, all the tech apologists, the, all these tech guys, you know, who love China. Oh, it's, it's not a big deal. This is just what they're doing. In fact, these are regulatory moves that everybody makes. That's ridiculous. We know that this is not a main, this is not just a normal regulatory thing. And that's the second part of advice. And I think these are what I would call like, you know, the dark, the dark shadow people, you know, the people who are always looking for, not the Gordon Changs of the world, but the other guys who've just woken up and the other women, men and women have woken up and they're saying, get out. They're saying, look, sell while you can, you know what I'm saying? Go ahead and move. It's, it's good. It's about to be a ghetto. Um, they have no intention of being international. Xi Jinping doesn't want to be international. Um, we don't know what they're doing. We're going to, we don't know the signals they're sending. Why, why, You've made money or you haven't made money, but protect what you have and get out and then see what happens down the road. There's other places to put your money. And I, and I believe that's happening. And I think we're going to continue to see that. And I think it's going to be very interesting in the next couple of years. It may not even be that long in the next couple of years to see where things are going for example foreign direct investment and all those types of things let's see what's happening let's see if the chinese are coming over to buy things let's see if we're letting them buy things that's going to be that's going to be really interesting right right the last um last episode we were talking about this a bit and <laughs> shifting gears but not entirely so we had uh, assessed and predicted that west side story the woke <laughs> remake was going to be a flop and it is uh, only a little over a hundred million dollars on, or excuse me, I think um, over, over ten. So it's like fifteen to twenty that they've made on a hundred million dollar project that costs more than that. Actually, if you put in marketing costs, yeah, it's huge. that is not a flop. Is the new Spider-Man movie, which is is just going gangbusters, past a billion dollars, and did that? Pri I understand primarily through domestic um, box office. Yeah, uh, yeah. What does that it's tell just, us? It tells us that they don't need. It tells us that somebody's sitting around saying we don't need China now. I can bet you can bet your bottom dollar. Disney is never going to pull out of China. I don't really blame them. I mean, that's a big market for them. 1.4 billion consumers of people who love Mickey Mouse. Okay, <laughs> so that's fine. But what it's telling me is this, that we basically there is an opportunity for investors out there. And I'd love to be able to find a good script. There is an opportunity out there for investors to basically actually get a return on their money. I keep thinking of the Christian movies. In other words, everybody always makes, it's like the Hallmark Channel. You yeah. turn on the Hallmark Channel and you're like going, oh my God, who are these actors? I've never heard of them. <laughs> I've never seen any of these it's gotta people. It's got to be Sevierville, Tennessee, Smoky Mountain. I don't know. Yeah, and it's, and it's, it's always about like, you know, about, you know, like the beagle that won Christmas or something like that. Yep, yep. But I Hallmark think there's one going on upstairs right now. Yeah, but, <laughs> but Hallmark <laughs> actually makes money. You know, it's a pretty, oh, it's yeah. apparently a very popular channel. I don't watch it much, but it is. And so the thing is, is that someone's going to come along and say, hey, the Australians just, I cannot, I'm sorry, I cannot remember. Like, the Australians just had a special on China espionage, and it did very, very well. And the Chinese were not happy about it. The Australians <laughs> didn't seem to care. So that's a market of, you know, not even 30 million people. So think about the market that you're going to get here if somebody decides to do that. And also the other thing, too, is we're going to have the distribution. You know, one of the things is, is we're going to see what's going to happen when some of these uh, Hong Kong 
and other uh, documentaries finish their little small, they're going to very small theaters, but then they will try to jump on to Netflix or jump on to some other ones. Let's see if Netflix takes them. Let's see if, if Amazon Prime takes them. These are, these are, they're completely more le- legitimate with other documentaries, you know what I'm saying? But let's see if they take them. If they don't take them, well, that's going to be a mistake. But then again, maybe they'll be up on YouTube or they'll be on some other channel. But I, I'm, I'm convinced that what this has shown us is that there's a business model now. And someone's out there trying to think about how they do it. Because, you know, if you think, think if you had an anti-China, anti, I shouldn't say anti-China, that's wrong. An anti-communist, anti-CCP movie. Yes. A series. Oh, God. It would be popular in the U.S. A Red Dawn. Yeah, a Red Dawn or something like that. But if you did, remember, they changed that because they were so upset. They changed it to North Koreans. But think if you change it, if you do something like, you know, Chinese espionage in the U.S., the Chinese are the bad guys. Hell, the Chinese make the Americans the bad guys all the time. Why can't we make them the bad guys? So, you know, so why not do that? Make them make them the bad guys. And then what happens? Well, then what happens is you, they, you, you're popular where? You're popular in the U.S., Canada. Probably parts of Europe is okay with it. But you're certainly popular in Japan and parts of Asia. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it, it certainly works over there. And, and there are going to be people that do this. There are going to be people who come up with scripts, who come up with things. And I, I think once that starts happening, that's when you're going to really see the Chinese roar. That's when you're going to see them threaten people. And I think they still have some, some significant holdings in some of these uh, movie theaters. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're going to see them probably maybe stop these things going to the movie theaters, which, of course, will be gold for the movies. You know, in other words, if you if you can get if you can get the dreaded Mr. Wu or something like that to step up at this Chinese ministry or Wang Li or somebody, go, no, you cannot show this in the U.S. Oh, my God. You know, yes, that would be excellent marketing, free advertising. Glad you mentioned Amazon Prime sticking with media. So Jeff Bezos uh, photographed in St. Bart in flagrante delicto. Is that what you say? Um, So not exactly engaging the act of sex, but, you know, canoodling with a um, (laughs) an attractive model. This is the owner of The Washington Post. Donald Trump famously called it the uh, Amazon Washington Post. Used to be a serious paper. Now more of a, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> That's, no, th- look, this is exactly the point. In the media business, your owner is a lot of your brand. Murdoch is Murdoch. And so people see that. Let's give the Salzburgers credit up at the New York Times. They're seen as serious people. You know, New York left wing uh, left wingers. But, you know, basically exactly what you expect. I mean, you know, weekends yeah. at the Hamptons or whatever that is. Bloomberg, somewhat the same way. hard charging, hard nosed businessman. Guy out at the L.A. Times, you know, entrepreneurial, Im- you know, immigrant, fantastic or, you know, fantastic uh, story there. And Jeff Bezos was the same thing. But now he's got the Washington Post and, and I'm going to turn this into investment advice. And so he goes to St. Parts. They go to St. Bart's. That's fine. I love St. Bart's. I'm sure people love it. Never been there, but I'm sure I'd love it. <laughs> they go on their big yacht, on their super yacht. And what do they do? They go out basically knowing that paparazzi are all over the place. In other words, literally, I mean, being from Apple Daily, I can promise you across from Jeff Bezos were three speedboats filled with guys who paid like 100 bucks each with their cameras and are taking pictures. Okay. (laughs) And the point being, the point that they're really, the point really being is, is that he just didn't care. 
And he's the owner of that paper. He's sending people out to do things. And, you know, the funny thing is five day, two days before he left, they did a hit piece on Tom Friedman for donated money to certain causes. My point is, is that your brand is your newspaper. And if you're a Washington Post journalist, you're going like, all right, here's my boss out here basically playing grab ass with his girlfriend for the whole world to see, which is fine. If you want to do it, you want to do it. But this is it. And also, we have to remember that his his Miss Sanchez has actually been part of the team that selected the chief editor of the Wall Street Journal. I mean, of the of the new of the Washington Post. She, she it's in the Washingtonian. She was participating in the interviews. You don't think she said, oh, Jeff, I liked her. I didn't like him. I liked her. So in other words, this couple who's out there at St. Bart's running around not being serious people, they are the purveyors of this newspaper. It's not a serious they're not serious. They're not serious people. That's my that's my point. They don't come off as serious people. A newspaper is a public trust, a news organization. There is a public trust there. And also you have a trust to your employees that your employees be taken seriously. Let me tell you right now, we, are they, the Chinese took the newspaper from us, Apple Daily. But if I was at the New York Times right now and I was at the Wall Street Journal, I would be having a field day with. OK, now you wouldn't get a job with Bezos, ever, but who cares? And, you know, but I would have. But it, it really shows you. And to me. You have to look at the established players in the media right now. And that's really I mean, the, 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 of course, Fox is doing well. I think some of the I think some of the people do be well. I think Comcast will probably be OK. But the real people who are, are hurting are CNN and Washington Post. But really, this would make if I'm Axios or if I'm Politico, this would make me feel pretty good that I don't have a serious competitor. And if you're an investor, what it tells me is you've still really got two plays if you're looking for online media space, and that would be the Wall Street Journal through News Corp and the New York Times. Because this guy's not a play, he's not gonna be a player. You can't do this in the news business. You can't act like this in the news business and be taken seriously. You know. Right, right. You know, it just strikes me he's, uh, to use an overused term, the least relatable of the billionaires recently. He said something with a tin ear, which was, you know, yeah. he went to space and he's like, oh, I want to thank all the Amazon workers for making this possible. It was a little like that old movie, Sunset Boulevard. Is it Norma Desmond? Sort of, oh, and all of you wonderful people out there in the dark. Um, the little people I, who made this happen. I, 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 look, I mean, just because, I mean, look, the guy is a genius. He in the world, Mark's, I, I'm sure I'm sure he can do more good with like one donation. His wife's given a lot of money away. I'm not sure I agree with all her causes, but she's given a lot of money away. He can do so much good. But, you know, the fact of the matter is one thing, great thing about a democracy and a competitive market is if you're him and you make these types of mistakes, that's it. And, and part of me, I have to be honest with you, part of me sees it as a little bit self-destructive because he's a smart guy. And he has smart people around him. And I can just see his PR people cringing right now. And I'm sure, quite frankly, do you really, if you're at the Washington Post now, Lauren Sanchez, you know what I'm saying? Uh, basically celebrity is what she is. Okay. She, there's not really a serious news story to her name. I looked her up. I mean, she's been an anchor and all this stuff, but she's not, you know, she's basically, uh, you know, uh, 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 just a celebrity. She's choosing your editors and she's gauging your stories. So she's basically, you know, she has pillow talk. So if you do a story that she doesn't like, you know, look, look what you're dealing with.
Wow. Yeah. Well, and it shows in the end product. Uh, I don't say this just as a conservative. I mean, I certainly don't and never have had a Washington Post subscription. The first time I was in government in the 2000s, I would still have a fair amount of articles from them sent to me, but it was no longer the, the, the paper that drove politics in Washington. Uh, second time around in the early Trump administration, it was just AWOL. Uh, and even for the liberals, I don't think progressives no, are really right. hanging on the words of this anymore. They've, they've gone elsewhere, too. I, look, I, I grew up in D.C. We, I grew up in the Washington Post. I mean, I worked for Catherine Graham. Now, of course, I was doing gardening for her. <laughs> That's my favorite story. I, I always tell people, yes, I worked for Catherine Graham. And people go, wow. And I go, she liked her boxwoods a certain height. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> she like, you know, you know, every spring yeah. I would come. Well, I mean, Steve that, wins golf clubs once. I should. Use yeah. That. Yeah. You should use that. But the thing is, it's like I grew up with the paper and, you know, I mean, Woodward and Bernstein were a little craziness, you know what I'm saying? But I mean, it was I mean, I think you were telling me it was a story that when Bill Casey would have a car and, the, and they would have cars sitting out front when the paper would first be dropped off and it would drive it off to the White House and they would drive it off to other places. In fact, I heard a story about that, that basically Catherine Graham cut a deal with the Democrats and the Republicans where they knew where to pick it up. In other words, like I'm dropping off 400 papers here, all the drivers and all the news crews would come there, too. In other words, you know, because they want to get the morning stories from the news crews. And, you know, and she said, just go ahead and do it. And like the print guys would like, you know, it would be it, it, would, it would open it up. And uh, I heard the story from somebody uh, just when I, I told them what you told me. And they said, yeah, but this is how it worked. Huh, you know, th there'd be 20 guys who would come over and get the paper. Now, maybe Casey being the freak that he was. You know, had some guy go into a special 7-Eleven. I don't know, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, I think I gleaned as a Joe Persico who did the biography a long time ago. I would have come out in late <laughs> on Casey. Good book, though. Um, you know, so the opposite end of the spectrum as far as what companies do. But I love this story. It was uh, in Nikkei. Asia, uh, out of Japan. So Adaro, the Indonesian coal company, yeah. is uh, going to build a 728, um, I believe, billion dollar. Is that right? That sounds like a lot. Um, that sounds a little bit much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So million. But that's still, yeah. All right. So yeah. it's, it's, it's almost a billion dollars. But we're talking about a single factory in Indonesia that's going to be an aluminum smelter. And because it's under pressure to diversify from coal for uh, both climate and just economic reasons. But this is pretty funny. So the company basically says, okay, you don't like us being all about coal. We'll diversify. We'll diversify into the most energy intensive thing there is, aside mm -hmm. maybe from mining cryptocurrency, because it takes a tremendous amount of heat yeah, to make good aluminum. Um, and also they say, you know, we're, we're going to use the energy that's available to us, which of course is mostly coal. coal. <laughs> there, there's a little solar in the mix. Uh, and it gets better because the cherry on the cake is we are going to switch eventually to a less carbon an intensive form of energy, but this is Indonesia, so that's going to be hydro, which I love. I love dams. I think they're they're beautiful uh, and a, a symbol of human achievement, and they make very clean energy. But most of the environmentalists don't. So you know, I think it just uh, you've done a lot of business in that part of the world, especially in shipping. Um, is this just one company, or are they seeing through the BS? I mean, are countries like Russia and Indonesia I mean really going to get ahead because they're not buying the climate uh, extremism? Look, one of the things is, is that they don't sit around and take, I mean, most of these companies, um, if they're listed, the family owns a controlling stake. Um, 
you're still dealing with first generation all the way through. Hong Kong is like that. Uh, almost all of Asia is like that. E even the Japanese companies, the big Japanese companies, there is a controlling thing. They, they, they're not insensitive to it. In other words, they'll do it if they think it's good business. But the fact of the matter is, no, they're not going to be bullied. And the nature of the nature of it in Indonesia is like, okay, this is what we can make money doing. This is what we'll do. This is the law. If we don't like the law, we'll have the law changed maybe a little bit, you know. But the thing is, is like, yeah, they, they, it's it's one of the it's one of the fantasies. It's kind of like my neighbor when I was in Hong Kong. I had a neighbor in Hong Kong. He was a really nice guy. Oh God, he was so nice. But you know, he was into like agriculture on the roof of our building. <laughs> and he fought for like three years to get like he wanted to get planters up there. And I was like, why? I said, just why? I said, I don't understand. What's your point? And he goes, Well, this way, he said, we're starting something. And like, you know, if we can have agriculture on the building, you know, you know, you can do it. And I'm going like, Yeah, but what can how much can we do? What do you grow? Five tomatoes a month or something like that? I mean, you know, <laughs> come on. But the thing is, is like a lot of this stuff, and, and I think the practicality of Asia too. And I think the other thing too is, Kristen, what we have to remember is, I don't know what's happened, but I find with the wealthy in Asia, they are much more connected in terms of what poverty means and alleviating poverty. You know, and I know that sounds odd to say, but I mean, if you look at the elites in San Francisco, if you look at the elites in our tech world, in our financial world, we seem to basically not be really be focused on poverty alleviation anymore. Now, maybe we believe everybody who works hard can get a job, but in, in Asian nations, poverty alleviation and lifting people out of the bottom is still a priority. And so... You know, I mean, if you've got a factory that works and you can do something and you don't have to have slave labor, as we were talking earlier, if you're not send guys up to Russian labor camps to do it, then, you know, I think that plays over. But I really, I really do agree. I think I think when you bring it to them, they're going to look at the numbers. They're going to look at the argument and they're not going to be bullied. And it's interesting to me to watch all the ESG stuff in Asia. And it's so funny because it's always the same people, the same banks, everybody else, and they just write a check. In other words, like these Indonesian conglomerates, they hand the guy a check for $100,000, they view it as a tax, and then they go do what they're going to do. <laughs> it's an elegant solution if you have to do it. It still leaves these groups in the position of sort of successful extortionists, which is lamentable, but at least they're not warping the entire composition of of the economy in these places well i mean you know you were talking we're talking about i mean well, you know look at russia yeah yeah and that's an interesting one because the russians central bank uh just increased rates so they actually take inflation seriously there yeah. and inflation is registering seriously in russia but they just cranked up rates to 8.5 percent and they're going higher um, this is you know in contrast to every western federal reserve uh in japan where it's just you know interest rates are a theory sometime in the future it's supposed to happen in 2022 but we'll see uh but russia's already doing that um and only has 20 percent debt to gdp 
national debt. So in other words, its national debt is only a fifth of any given year's GDP. That's a big difference than us. The United States, we're, we're around, depending if whether you count the worthless IOUs um, that the Treasury wrote to the Social Security yeah. Administration, we're at about 100 to 120 percent of GDP in debt. That, those are French levels. Really, the only country ahead of us is Japan, which seemingly defies gravity on the amount of debt it can rack up, but it also has what is it, Japan Post, where a lot of people keep their retirement, which can sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting, it's a whole separate topic. We could do a whole show on financing in Japan. But so here you have Russia. They're making real stuff. They're about to uh, vastly increase the amount of gas they ship directly to Germany. Germany's playing a little uh, hard to get with its new uh, vaguely socialist uh, coalition, where I believe it's the foreign minister or the economic minister who's a member of the Green Party, who's, who's sort of jerking them around a little bit. But long story short is Russia never bought the we need to curtail production of hydrocarbons. We're heading for zero oil. We're going to be carbon neutral by 2030. They will, like you sort of said, the guy who writes a 100K check, um, pay a little bit of lip service to this, but not a whole lot. And so if you have a Russian uh, currency that's stable or appreciating, you can actually earn a little bit of return in real terms on their debt. Does this look like a, I mean, assuming there's not a war in Ukraine, which I don't think there will be, um, there are some sanctions in place, of course, but is this an economy we should generally be bullish on? Um, I mean, look, 8.5%, they got oil and gas coming out their ears. You know, they got gold, they've got precious metals, they've got, you know, I mean, they've got everything but people. So that's my only hold back with Russia is that basically it's still a country with a net migration out. Yeah. People still leave. And that's a problem for them. It's a very big problem. Now, the question is, is that, you know, do they basically, as a friend of mine says, are they kind of the Saudi Arabia of, you know, they, you know basically just oil, gas, natural resources with like almost a Norwegian small or Scandinavian technical base? I think the Russians are actually quite more formidable than people think. I think the idea of putting them to bed is a bit much. I'm not one of these ones that really looks at them as a global rival to the U.S., but um, I think we can make them one if we keep getting weaker. But I think the, I, I think the issue with Russia is if you can find a way to invest in them, it's hard. It's not easy to invest in Russia. It's, it's, it's very difficult. But if you can find a way to get in, I mean, I, 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 was, I was looking when we talked about like the bonds, you know, I mean, 8.5% is pretty damn attractive, you know, uh, for bonds. I mean, I, I'm sure Mark, the famous Mark Faber would be all over them right now. But, you know, they, they are taking inflation seriously. They, they seem to have a good, a good handle on their employment. Their education system is, is solid. Maybe people will start staying. If people start staying, then, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But it is a country that at this point in time, I just don't understand what sector one could jump in. Maybe there's some ETFs or something like that, but the companies are corrupt as hell. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a hard one. But, here, but, this, the, but the main point that I'd make is, is I think, as you said, they have everything and – they have very little debt. So they're not exactly an easy one to knock off. I mean, China's actually in a lot worse shape than they are in many yes. ways, you know. 
And, and yeah, I think- it does seem that China's about, you know, on the precipice of a bubble popping and Russia, on the other hand, is, is sort of, I mean, uh, you know, laid the foundation for some long term growth. Yeah. Just one final thing. Russia's not built on real estate either. That's the one yeah. thing that people forget. <laughs> Russia, Russian real estate is like, you know, I mean, maybe some stuff in Moscow, St. Petersburg. But I mean, let's face it, if you go like I, I was talking to a guy and he said you would be shocked at what you can get, you know, in Moscow in not one of the more fashionable districts. He said, well, you're talking like 5,000 square feet for nothing, you know? And he said, and you, and then you get the labor, fix it up and it's really nice. But I mean, then again, you're in Russia. So, yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, the dacha they used in death of Stalin, that great satire a couple of years ago, looked very nice. So if you could pick yeah. that up reasonably, then, you know, hey, absolutely. why not? One way to invest in Russia, I do have a small stake in. It's RSX. It's the thing, Van Eck, Russia ETF. Uh, it's the big names you've probably heard a lot of. Um, Lukol is in there. There's a big aluminum company that isn't, which I wish was, um, but it's hard. And as far as buying bonds directly, I believe sanctions prohibit U.S. banks from, from yeah, participating in an issuance. That doesn't mean you can't buy them on the secondary market, but I think you need an international um, yeah, it's, it's, to do that. It, to be honest with you, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, I mean, we, I, don't, I never want to be one of these guys that go, let me tell you. The Lebanese currency is the one to get, you know, I mean, you know, the Lebanese currency and, and I'm telling you, get yourself some drachmas. I mean, average person is just, I mean, if, if, if I can't, if I, if it takes me too much to do, why do it? I don't even do Bitcoin because I don't want to fill out the IRS stuff. You know what I'm saying? No, no. And, 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 and so the thing is, is like, you know, when you start getting around with all these things, but you know, I, I just think it's, I think it's really fascinating. And, you know, and I, I just, I think, to me, you know, my final point would be is like one of the things in 2020 was we saw basically investment in the U.S. dry up a little bit. Um, China, it wasn't huge. I mean, China had like an increase in investment, of, I think it was like from 130 to 150 billion. And the U, but the U.S. went from like 250 to like 130 billion. And that was largely because we're close. So I think we're going to see a lot of money start flowing in. There's a lot of stuff going on in the U.S. There's a lot of people that want to be here. If you're Chinese, even if you're Russian, you want to get some money. If you're from someplace else in the world, the U.S. is still the most secure place to put your money and Canada and the U.K. So I, to me, I always tell people, you know, look, go with a place that where the rule of law matters and go with a place that has some some continuing upside immigration. I, th- I think that's going to be the new play. I wonder if there's a fund out there, like we just call it like the migration fund. Essentially, the only premise for the fund is the company has to do most of its business in countries that are actually experiencing migration growth. That's a great idea. You'd probably beat most other yeah. ETFs and advisors by doing that. Uh, people voting with their feet is the most sort of convincing, convincing vote oh, yeah. there is. Oh, absolutely. It's like, don't buy real estate. Don't buy, don't buy commercial real estate in the Northeastern United States or even California now, you know? Yes. I I think when the Fed stops um, snapping up every mortgage in sight instantly once it's issued and banks actually have to contemplate, you know, uh, the interest rate environment over 30 years or 15 years or less, but um, in, in making a bet on real estate that some of those bets will be harder and harder to make. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. If you liked it as much as we enjoyed making it, please subscribe, whether you're watching us on YouTube or a podcast catalog. Thanks again. And we will be back with another episode very soon. Thanks.